You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I was going to play in the big game and give it my best shot. It was not the national series of poker, it was the world series of poker, and I would represent my country, the Republic of Anhedonia. We have no borders, but the population teems. No one has deigned to write down our history, but we are an ancient land, founded during the original disappointments, when the first person met another person. I would do it for my countrymen, the shut-ins, the doom-struck, the morbid of temperament, for all those who walk through life with poker faces 24-7 because they never learned any other way, for the gamblers of every socioeconomic station, working class, middle class, upper class, broke ass, for the sundry gamblers 12 stories below my hotel room, tossing chips into the darkness, for the internet wraiths, maniacally clicking before their LCDs and ill-lit warrens in Akron, Boise, and Bhopal, who should really get out more. For all the amateurs who need this game as a sacred haven once a month, who seek the sanctuary of draw and stud, where there are never any wild cards, and you can always count on a good hand every once in a while. For Big Mitch and Methy Mike, Robotron and the lady with the crimson hair, the ones who would kill to go to Vegas and will never make it there, my people, all of them. Did I sound disdainful of them before? It was recognition you heard. I contain multitudes, most of them flawed. Plus, I've always wanted to wear sunglasses indoors. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, John Henry Day's, Apex Hides the Hurt, Sag Harbor, and Zone One, as well as a collection of essays, The Colossus of New York. His new book is The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef, Jerky, and Death. Thank you for joining me, Colson. Oh, thanks for having me back. It's always a, a real blast. Tell us how you got into this pickle, uh, getting yourself uh, staked for the World Series of Poker. Sure. I, was, um, I, I just finished my last novel, Zone One, and I was hoping to take a break. And then I got a call from an editor for a new magazine, Grantland. It's an ESPN sports pop culture hybrid. And they, want, they were trying to find unlikely writers you know, to write for them, people who they liked but didn't necessarily write about sports. So they proposed some sports topics, and I was like, no, I hate sports. Um, and then they had heard that I liked poker, and so what if I went to cover the World Series of Poker, you know, 10 days in Las Vegas? And that seemed like you know, it might be a bit boring. And then uh, my editor, Dan Fearman, said, well, what if we staked you $10,000 to play in the World Series? That would be your fee for the article, your entrance fee. And uh, you wrote about that. And of course, I had no choice, even though I was really needing a break from writing. Talk about your feeling about writing after finishing a book about zombies. You weren't too happy with the world. No, I mean... um. You know, my, my last two books, my last two novels, Sag Harbor, that one's very optimistic. It's about kids growing up in the 80s, and that's sort of one side of my personality. And then Zone, Wood, Zone One was a way to express my other side, my sort of pessimistic side that is more misanthropic. And the hangover of, of sort of hanging in that post-apocalyptic world with all those characters 
coupled with some other things in my life, you know, sort of made me think I didn't want to write for a while and just sort of kick back. And then when the assignment came, I couldn't say no. You know, as, as a home player, I never thought I would be at the World Series. I love cards. You know, I played for many years. I started cramming books, uh, you know, how-tos and uh, various poker advice. And I realized I was buying the wrong books because a, a tournament, like what you play at the World Series of Poker, is different than your home game. It has a different rhythm, different betting conventions, you know, there's a different sort of ebb and flow of when you should act and when you should be passive and when you should wait to sort of get in the mix. Um, so I, I realized I had really had to, had to step up my training for the final six weeks I had before going there. Well, tell us a little bit about your history as a card player. You started early and, and often in college, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved cards, you know, playing war with my little brother uh, as a kid. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't take a lot of skill, but, you know, past the hours. And then in college, you know, I was always, you know, sort of adrift in the afternoons and haunting the dorm, trying to find someone to play hearts, wrestle up a few players for that game. And then I guess I got into cards in earnest senior year, uh, my roommates and I, you know, we were about to graduate, and we would just get a case of beer every day and play bridge. And no one had played bridge before. We just had, you know, a, a rule book. And we played, um, I guess what we called Galapagos-style bridge, because uh, we had our own style, and then on the mainland, you know, they're doing things differently. But we had our <laughs> ingrown uh, style we were playing. And then as, as a social game in my 20s, you know, playing once a week with, you know, friends seems sort of crazy now getting together once a week with people. And that's when I started, I learned, started playing poker, and then eventually Hold'em, which was becoming more popular, entered the mix. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of your first experiences in Vegas. You visited Vegas a long time before you went for the World Series as just out of school and in a kind of writing assignment with some really interesting uh, companions. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, uh, a friend of mine... Uh, Darren Aronofsky, who's now a director, you know, directed The Wrestler, Black Swan, and most recently Noah, um, had a job writing for Let's Go, which is a student-run travel guide uh, put out by Harvard students. The idea was that Darren, I, and um, our friend Dan, who had a car, would split the the writing duties for Let's Go Southwest. So it was uh, Nevada, California, doing L.A., San Diego, San Francisco. Lake Mead, the Grand Canyon, and Las Vegas. So the first time I've, I've been out of New York, really, the East Coast, uh, we drove across country. I think when we got to Vegas, I expected to, you know, look down upon, you know, the campy, kitschy Vegas I knew from pop culture, uh, Vegas, the TV show, Dan Tana. But of course, once I, you know, I dropped a nickel in a one-armed bandit after five minutes after we sat down and was hooked, I won $5. And from then on, even though on that trip, I probably only won like 30 bucks total, um, I sort of got into the Vegas groove. And then since then, I've gone back many times and I've never you know, held it in disdain. I like the way it's changed. In the 80s and 90s, there were sort of you know corny themed hotels like Circus Circus and Excalibur. And they sort of stopped that. You know, the sort of engineers and architects of the leisure industrial complex have been working hard to make it a less dingy place and more of a, um, a family-friendly resort. So if you don't like gambling, 
and you know you don't have to like gambling to go there. There are spas, there's food, there's shopping. It's very clean. As a New Yorker, I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I don't think Vegas is out to get you and, and bankrupt you. They want you to come back. They want you to have like 48 hours of fun. Uh, they want you to, you know, punch your reward cards and get bonus points that you can spend on your next trip. So Vegas is not really out to get you. It's, you know, there to provide a break from the miseries of the everyday. You know, your mortgage, you know, discord at work or whatever. You can go to Vegas, enter this bubble of safety for a while. These vampires won't drain you and turn you into a vampire. They'll leave enough blood behind so they can come back for a second. That's the, uh, that's the, that's the, the appropriate uh, analogy. Um, yes, I mean, if, you, if you're bankrupt, you, you can't come back. Obviously, uh, there are gambling addicts, and that's a different sort of uh, thing I'm talking about. Um, most people are not uh, addicted to gambling and, and see it and you know, can go and leave you know, more or less unscathed. One of the things I think as I picked up this book, it is the most beautifully written book. It's hysterical and every sentence is just packed with this kind of co- a peculiar combination of dark, dark uh, depression. You're, you're, at one point, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> you, you describe yourself as you're not depressed, you're celebrating despair. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're, you're curating despair. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, uh... I'm not the natural person to be on social media, but I took to Twitter a couple of years ago and, um, you know, I work at home. I don't see anybody. And so trading weird jokes with people on the Internet and getting my news feed and, you know, pop culture news uh, makes the hours pass by. And I, I, I had started, started a character uh, whose voice was performative despair is what I call it. Just sending out weird negative vibes out into the world, you know. Um, strange jokes about despair and depression, and people liked it. You know, people were always laughing, and I was I was laughing even though I was sort of wallowing in misery. And it seemed, you know, once I sort of realized how out of depth I was and going to the World Series of Poker, that kind of persona uh, would serve the book. And I think um, in fiction, I can be pretty controlled. Like I sort of know what I've what I'm setting out to do, and I, I do a lot of planning. Of course, there's, you know, the surprise as you write and the books take you in different places and characters change and uh, situations become more or less important. Uh, but there's a way that this voice and having this, you know, my persona in the book, uh, which is me, but not me and, you know, tells more jokes and is a bit more miserable, was very freeing. I could, I could just sort of do hit and run jokes, non sequiturs, pop culture uh, jokes and I wasn't worried about explaining, you know, them to the reader. I think it made for, you know, a, a very limber and, and, and fleet voice in the book. It's just so much fun to read. I, I, I really felt it like it was just a, a blast. It's kind of like being in a jewelry store where you can eat the jewelry or something. <laughs> Although maybe that's not right. <laughs> um, you you get this assignment and, and you, you have to kind of, change the style of your play and you're also kind of balancing you know your family life uh, between uh, the what used to be um, uh, these weekly games now you're going down to Atlantic City talk about the kind of changes uh, that that caused you that you kind of went through just you kind of had to change who you were you were in the midst of being changed anyway and you had to change who you were to take on this assignment yeah I mean um yeah, I realized that was out of my depth, and so 
there are a couple things I had to do. One was uh, start going to Atlantic City for training missions to play cheap tournaments and just get more uh, experience. So I would drop off my daughter at school, uh, hop on the bus to Atlantic City, and then gamble, gamble, gamble all day. Um, uh, <laughs> running around, you know, trying, you know, I'd wash out of one tournament, go across town to another one that was starting like an hour later, um, and then come back at 3 a.m., go through the Port Authority in New York and, and wearily get back into bed and start over again. So that was one thing, just practical experience on the ground. And then a friend of mine, um, my home game is like a writer's game. It's, I only meet writers because I, I don't get out much. So a novelist of my acquaintance, Hannah Tinty, knew somebody uh, from grad school who had started playing in the World Series of Poker. And her name was Helen Ellis, and she writes, her last book was a young adult novel. And she'd been stepping up her poker presence the last couple of years. And she agreed to meet with me and then became like my coach, telling me where to play, which the proper books to read, proper nutrition. You know, we made for an odd pair. She's you know has this great Southern accent. Her sort of mask at the poker table is that of a, you know, sort of quiet housewife. Uh, when she sits down, she's wearing black sweater and pearls. And when people say, what do you do? She's like, oh, I'm a housewife. And then, of course, uh, in a male-dominated game, that's a good sort of bluff. You know, they sort of condescend to her or flirt with her. And, and then she plays really well and, and takes their money. So, you know, I say in the book that it reminded me of like one of those racial harmony movies like The Blind Side or something where a southern white lady, you know, takes in a weirdo black guy and teaches him how to use a fork or something. Uh, but instead of you know, forking up food, I'd be forking up poker knowledge. So that became sort of a running joke and just the, just the sort of disparity in, in, in our personalities. And then, you know, mostly as a joke, but I actually found it very useful. I, I got a personal trainer to help me with posture and staying limber at the poker tables. Uh, you think that you're sitting on your butt all day, and you are, but you're also burning calories through anxiety and being engaged in the game. So... I met a woman named Kim Albano, who's a personal trainer, and she uh, taught me various yoga things and breathing exercises. And the breathing exercises actually were very useful um, when I was freaking out after a big hand or a big loss. I could just sort of just like chill out, Colson, you know, take a, take a deep breath and hope that nobody at the table was really noticing what I was doing. One of the things I think that's uh, so much fun about this book is the way that you use the Republic of Anhedonia. So talk about casting yourself as a citizen of a country that exists in your mind. Yeah, well, it's the World Series of Poker. So what nation do I really represent? I'm American, yes, but you know what's my true homeland? And it seemed the country I was really representing would be the Republic of Anhedonia. Anhedonia, from psychology, being a term that means the inability... inability and Woody Allen. Pleasure. Yeah, I guess that was, Anhedonia was the original title for Annie Hall. So it seemed the Republic of Anhedonia, I would be playing for, for me, my countrymen, you know, all the sort of sad sacks out there. So in, in the book, you know, I invent various cultural touchstones, you know, our national animal, our, um, uh, our national anthem, which is just a series of grunts and sighs and uh, depressive moans. Figuring that I want to... Be more obvious and obvious in my affiliation. I got a, a sweatshirt made uh, that said the Republic of Anhedonia, and it has lightning bolts on it. The T-shirt, the, t the sweatshirt designer, didn't really know what I was talking about, and uh, I had to explain what I was doing, and she sort of shook her head. But I, I want that sweatshirt. I think 
<laughs> looks great. Yes, uh, um, you know the, the back, uh, the the back of the book uh, has a picture of me in it. Unfortunately, I could shrunk, and I think my beer belly sort of expanded, so it doesn't really fit as well. Um, but I do take it out for a spin occasionally. Uh, when you're practicing, uh, one of the things you have to do is you have you have these kind of different exercises, um, preserving your essence, your position, getting your position at the table. Talk about kind of going through those and then writing about them. Because I think that on one hand, the way you went through them must have been fairly methodical. You're being taught by your sensei. But the way you write about them is just so much fun. You know, that, that chapter is fun because I'm cutting between uh, you know, going to Atlantic City and then uh, meeting Helen and my personal trainer, Kim Albano. And hopefully, you know, that's amusing. And also, I'm also conveying facts about poker. You know, the book isn't uh, necessarily for people who love poker. I think it's, you know, partially for people who hate poker. You know, I love immersive journalism like Bill Buford's Heat, where someone goes undercover and brings back news of the subculture, you know, to the people. So Bill Buford, New Yorker editor, uh, left his job to work in Mario Batali's kitchen, cutting vegetables and then becoming a line cook. And and as you get the story of his learning curve, you also learn about Mary Batali's biography, how he started his restaurants, the day-to-day workings of, of big restaurants, the history of certain dishes as Bill Buford goes to Italy and researches. And, you know, I love when people sort of go deep and and bring back news of a part of the world that most people aren't familiar with. So I want to explain poker culture, you know, the poker players, how, how to play, you know, hold them in a very elementary way. And then mix that in with my sort of fish out of water experiences as I try to get a handle on, on, on different things. I, I, I would probably be one of those people. The only time I've ever seen anything about poker is when I flip past uh, the listings on the cable channel. <laughs> and see it's a, there's some kind of world series of poker past that. No, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, it's on TV a lot. You know, the poker boom has been going on for a while. A couple of things occasioned it. Uh, one was TV coverage. You know, someone decided that watching poker players play would be actually be more interesting if you could see their down cards, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and so if you watch poker on TV now, you see, you know, the poker pros, uh, you can see there there are two down cards and hold them, and then that allows for audience participation and for commentary. Before that, before you could see their cards, it's basically it was sort of like watching baseball without a ball, like with without with an invisible ball. So even more boring than watching regular baseball. Um, so televised poker brings a new audience. Uh, the rise of online poker, you could play in your house cram 20 years of experience into like a year and a half. You're playing all day, all night, uh, 10 games at once. And it allowed just 18 year olds to catch up to, you know, 60 year old cowboy players of poker's heyday. And I guess the third thing is just that amateurs started winning, you know, in 2000, the World Series of Poker was 500 players. The year I played, it was 6,800. And it was because instead of you know, the Cowboy players winning, it was Normal Joes. In in 2003, Chris Moneymaker, who... Um, that is real name. It is, yes. It is. <laughs> I had to say... <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, their nickname's like Amarillo Slim. Obviously, Amarillo Slim was not born with that name. But Chris Moneymaker was born with that name. He was an amateur player who 
played 40, uh, who spent like 40 something dollars to get into a lower stakes game. And that he won that. And that led to winning a seat at the World Series of Poker. And then he won it all. And so for the first time, just normal schmoes were getting to the final table and winning. And that, and that, of course, and if one person can do it, then why not everybody else? And so, you know, the, the tournament really expanded after that. One of the things you talk about is the poker nickname. So talk about choosing your poker nickname and the poker nickname in general. You know, the old colorful players have these poker handles. And it seemed that if I was going to be there, um, I should have my own. So I went through a few. I finally ended up on the unsubscribe kid since I mostly go through life trying to unsubscribe to various email lists and then also social activities and then things that other people find enjoyable. I was hoping that someone would actually ask me my poker nickname, but it never came up. But it seemed, you know, if I'm going to go full hog, I should probably uh, get my own handle. So maybe one day someone will ask me what my poker handle is. I'm not sure how to engineer that or drop into conversation. Tell us a little bit about the rise of this kind of poker hold'em. I mean, this is all, to be honest, it's a complete foreign language to me. I, sure. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I try to explain it in the book. You um, do a great but, job. But if you see it on, you know, in movies, you've seen five-card draw. That's sort of what cowboys are playing in westerns. You get five cards, you bet, you trade in some cards, you bet again, and that's it. And then I think in the 70s, the variation of poker called hold'em became popular. It started becoming sort of hip in the 90s, and then the movie Rounders, I think, really sort of gave its sort of real introduction to pop culture. Matt Damon is a, a young hold'em stud playing in underground clubs. He's a girlfriend. He's in debt. There are mobsters. And it's real sort of romance about the outlaw poker player in the form of Matt Damon, sort of, you know, 20-something white guy. And, of course, if you're 16 and you see that movie and Matt Damon is this desperado and he has a girlfriend who's really cute, Gretchen Mall, and there's a seedy underbelly. It you know gives you ideas. And so people who saw Rounders when they were 16 start playing casino in home games and then in casinos when they're 21. And then when the boom takes off in you know, 2002 to 2003, they're the sort of right young age to sort of transform the game. One of the things about poker is that it's an interesting game because it really unites two completely opposing forces. On one hand, it's a game that involves total math, uh, a, a very like practical kind of concentration and understanding um, odds and game theory. I mean, it, it's, it's a game that's uh, based on complete reality. On a very in a very specific set of you know limited fifty two cards. On the other hand, there's a whole kind of uh, quasi religious aspect to it as well. You know, luck and the poker gods. I'd like you to talk about uh, what happens in the middle between those two poles. Yeah, I mean, there's luck and then there's skill. All those mastering all those factors you just you just mentioned. You know, the, the really high level players are reading their opponent's body language for tells. You know, if you see in movies, you'll have the villain who tugs on his ear whenever he gets a, you know, a pair of aces, and that's the big reveal in the movie. Like, I know he, had a, he has a good hand because he always has this one sort of physical gesture. Um, obviously, in real life, it's not as dramatic, but you are aware of how people, people's posture and how they're betting and you know, their faces and stuff like that. So that's like one aspect 
that you know it's perhaps exaggerated. But then there's then there's the odds. There's studying betting patterns. How does this person, my opponent, bet when they have something big, when they're bluffing, and then over time, can you create a narrative of, of who they are? And, and that's where I guess game theory comes in. What's uh, how does this? How does my opponent react when the situation comes up? What does he do when he have when he has a certain set of cards, which I know he has? And then how do I counteract that? And then there's position where you're sitting at the, at the table. Are you acting first in a hand or last in a hand? In a, a tournament lasts for hours and uh, hours and days. How do you pace yourself? When should you be accumulating chips? When should you be a little more quiet? How are you dealing with the escalation of the stakes? You know, so many different factors, and that's skill. And definitely when I was there, I could only sort of keep track of a few things at once. I was trying not to make mistakes and, and trying to keep my head together. And then, of course, there's just luck. You know, for the best players, you'll get terrible cards for weeks, months, or years. And then how do you keep your head together during those bad spells until you your luck changes and you start getting good cards again or good openings or tournaments with um, a sort of beatable selection of players? But yes, you're waiting for an ace. You're waiting for the seven that will complete your straight. You're waiting for the third seven that gives you trips. And, you know, definitely part of the new game is with dexterity playing bad hands very aggressively so that people don't know what, what you have. But you're still going to eventually you're going to have to show you what you have and you need luck to step in. And so uh, it is a mix of those two forces, what you're bringing from your personality and skill set. And then just what the poker card, poker gods are dealing each hand. As with everything else in the world, poker has like a constant churn of new technologies. There's new playing techniques that come in. And that's something that I never, you know, had even considered to be possible. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, it was great sort of learning about the recent history of the game. Doyle Brunson, who was the, well, I'm the godfather of poker, wrote a book called Super System in the late 70s. And that was a sort of big poker, accessible poker book. But the problem about putting all your secrets down is that everyone knows what they are and they become better players and then they ha and then they start outplaying you and then you have to adapt as the writer. He and, regretted writing that book. Yes. I mean, you know, he made a lot of money definitely <laughs> over the years and, um, and still is a great innate player, but, you know, he gave over the keys to the kingdom. I started studying some tournament uh, books uh, that were written in, I think, 2005 by a guy named Dan Harrington. And he sort of put down in, in one place all the sort of received wisdom about how you play tournaments as opposed to regular home games or, or cash games. Um, so everyone read those books. And then once everyone has the same knowledge, you know, people start making variations and, and improvements. You know, the, the classic text is now a relic, you know, five years later because the game has changed again. And so the year I was there, you know, the rise of the Internet player, the young player who was very aggressive and didn't necessarily follow the rules of, of classic poker. You know, these guys were transforming the game. You know, 15 years before, it was the same sort of pool of 100 crusty pros who seemed to be winning. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but, you know, the top players always made it into the money. People were getting paid off. And now it's all sort of 20-year-olds. The year I played, there was one sort of guy in his 40s, uh, but the final table was people in their 20s who grew up on the internet, grew up watching the old cowboys play on TV, and had a new sort of aggressive game that was becoming more dominant. 
you call, have different poker types. There's a big Mitch and and Methy Mike, and I guess these guys are all Robotrons. Uh, and and there's and there's Robotrons. Yeah, the young guys are Robotrons. You know, uh, you know, once I started going to Atlantic City, I was meeting this sort of low level poker player. The, you know, I was playing cheap tables because I'm cheap and you know didn't want to lose money. Um, and so you're you're playing with weekend players. Big Mitch, sort of your average casino player, sort of middle aged white guy with a mortgage and you know a family who's there for the weekend, just wants to you know win some money so he can brag to his friends. And then there's Methy Mike, who's sort of like the the local, who seems intimidating, sort of looks like Iggy Pop on a bad day and. They say hi to the waitresses and dealers. They know each other. They're always going on about their bad string of luck, and you know they all seem uh, seem a bit desperate. And then there's the Robotrons, a sort of new species of, of young player. They have their hoodies, their sunglasses, their earbuds in, and they're listening to music. They're playing video games at the table in between hands. They're totally distracted, it seems. And then they jump in and play aggressively. The thing about listening to music and playing games is that not a lot happens in a tournament. You're playing, you know, two or three or four hands around. So there's downtime and you're observing other players, but now people, you know, have their iPads out and they're reading books, self-help books or listening to music or whatever, because there is that, you know, there are a lot of dull stretches in a tournament. You were making good use of your cell phone, which you have uh, strong feelings for. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, like, like many people, I'm addicted to my little buddy. Uh, my coach, Helen Ellis, was like, don't Pull out no tweeting or anything at the table. I want you concentrating. Uh, then, of course, we're at the world at the World Series of Poker, losing money and dwindling as the stakes got higher. I would run out between every break and try to and text Helen, and and she would feed me back information on how to play more aggressively. Now that I had a smaller stack of chips, she became my lifeline. I sort of joked that when we first met, my first met my personal trainer that I, I wanted Rocky style training to go to Atlantic City, to go to Vegas. And then when I was at the World Series of Poker, Helen became my sort of Burgess Meredith, Rocky-style coach in my corner, telling me how to play a pair of sevens and, and face cards now that I was fighting for survival. I, I love that whole Rocky motif, and I, and I love how through a lot of the book, you're, you're searching for that part of you that's going to be the magic Negro <laughs> Sure, yeah. Uh, you're talking about the, the dynamic with Helen. Like, yeah. You know, the white person teaches the black person something in all those, you know, Driving Miss Daisy, Blindside movies, uh, Legend of Bagger Vance. So what can I, as a magic Negro, give back to Helen? And um, I wasn't sure. But Helen, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, a mostly male game and female players are in the minority. So she plays tournaments on the, on the circuit, you know, different casinos. Uh, in different states, have different competitions throughout the calendar year where you sort of gather your money so you can get to the main event in, in July. She would go with her husband but didn't feel comfortable as a woman sort of traveling to a hotel and staying by herself and playing without having any sort of backup. And then, you know, having training me and having me in the game and keeping track of my progress at the World Series and, and, and coaching me, um, she became more invested and, and just more, I think, confident in her sort of poker powers and and stopped with her husband all the time. You know, if he had to go back to work two days into a tournament, she, you know, she felt comfortable staying and, and playing on her own. So, you know, I, I think she felt changed by the experience and became a more confident sort of heading out into the poker wilds by herself. 
One of the things I think that makes this book so wonderful is that absolutely beyond all the the really fascinating stuff you tell us is the the fabulous way it's been written and put together. Uh, because you do a great job of telling us different stories. There are stories within stories, and each little section has its kind of a hermetic feel, but the whole book has the hermetic feel of all the sections put together. It feels like one big section itself. I'd like you to talk about just architecting this book. Did, was this a book that just was spontaneously generated by dropping little bits of... Uh, mushroom spores into agar where they all blew blew up into new uh, mold spores well well there are two phases one was the article and then you know there's the book and in the six weeks when i was training i was coming up with a structure for the piece obviously there's a beginning middle and end you know my training explaining some poker rules and then going to las vegas um so there's an obvious just trajectory of, of plot what i was actually doing the republic of anhedonia Conceit came in early as a persona or voice for the book. And I knew that I wanted it to be, you know, more pop culture heavy and and more have more jokes per page than usual. You know, depending on the book, I can uh, have more humor or less humor, depending on you know the narrator and the tone. I think there's deadpan humor in Zone One, more sort of broad humor in Sag Harbor, you know, jokes about pop culture and teenagers being teenagers and then here i just wanted to sort of sort of let it rip in terms of, of, of absurd jokes and and strange connections between sections so so that voice came in, in very early in expanding it i was not done with the story definitely you know my last day the world series of poker was very important and I, you know i hope that comes across in those last 40 pages and then i had a new experience in terms of writing it in a serial form, because usually I write novels, I'm just in my, you know, terrible hermit house. And then two years later, I can finally show what people, show people what I've been working on, but it's a very isolated uh, endeavor. With, with this, you know, the first two sections came out when I was in Grantland, when I was still writing the last two. And, you know, I got such a great response on social media and blogs from people who liked it, liked the voice. Uh, were invested in the journey. You know, I didn't know how poker pros would take it, but I got a lot of affirmation from poker professionals. And that sort of gave me energy to finish the rest of the book. You know, I guess, you know, Dostoevsky and Dickens would write in serial form and uh, have that experience of writing in public, but I've never really, really had that. And so it was very lovely and, and definitely made me, you know, that wonderful experience coupled with actually being at the World Series made me want to expand it. And, and so there are obvious things that, that go in making the article into a book, explaining more about poker for the lay reader, and then following Helen as she spends nine months on the circuit, going to different events, talking to Matt Matros, who I haven't mentioned yet, but um, he was someone I met sort of randomly 12 years ago, and since then uh, has become a, a multiple bracelet winner in the World Series. You know, Super Bowl, the Super Bowl has Super Bowl rings, uh, the World Series has bracelets, and he's a you know very top player, done what you know few people have done, and he gave me advice that was very useful. So talking to him about his experience, so talking about Matros about his experiences and his changing attitude towards poker as someone who saw rounders and started and was raised on internet play, uh, all that becomes sort of natural in explaining the sort of culture of poker and and expanding the book. Well, it was so much fun, and this book. I think is a really nice 
uh, expansion of the tradition of books about poker, too. I think this is like the next step in evolution. It's the, the 21st century version. Well, you know, writers have gone, you know, writers are always being sent by magazines to, to do to do things. And, you know, we're just done journalism. So Al Alvarez went to the World Series of Poker in 1981 when it was 70 people for The New Yorker and wrote about it and has a great book called The Biggest Game in Town. Uh, James McManus went in 2000 for Harper's Magazine and ended up getting to the final table. He played a satellite, ended up getting all the way to the top nine. I'm not sure what attracts writers to poker, but I think if you love the game, you know, you're you're probably looking for a chance to write about it. And definitely I was psyched and excited uh, when this opportunity came to me. One of the things I think that is is, uh, so nice about this book is the sense of characters and story in it. You know, you you talked about Helen and uh, Matmos, Matmos. Matros. Matros, yes. <laughs> Whose name is often mispronounced. Yes, I, was, I mispronounced it for a long time and then was corrected. <laughs> Talk about, you know, you have kind of, you're balancing three things here, you know, characters, the story, and then the reportage. And that's not an easy uh, trick to do. I think you do a great job at it. No, though. thanks. I mean, I think because I'm always switching genres or, you know, my next book is always a sort of a left turn from the book I did before. I'm always trying to figure out a new form. So whether it's a pseudo coming of age story in Sag Harbor or a post-apocalyptic novel in, in Zone One, I'm starting from scratch a lot of the time. And so finding the structure and the, and the voice is always hard, you know, when I start writing. And so so in that way, just finding the right voice and structure for the noble hustle was what I, was what I always do. I'm always trying to figure out how to do this new form and what do I like about horror novels or what do I hate about coming-of-age novels and how can I make it bend it to my own end. From growing up reading Tom Wolfe, Norman Mailer, Hunter S. Thompson, you know, uh, new journalists who use the, the tools of fiction to uh, write about, uh, to write nonfiction books, it seemed natural to use some of the, you know, the fiction writer's toolkit to play with things in terms of voice or, or structure. It just seemed very natural to me. So, um, so I think that sort of helped. So what, which left turn are you taking now? Well, um, do you know? I, you know, I, I always take a year off in between books, and so I finished this book last May, and, and now it's now we're talking, and it's May again. I think I've been sort <laughs> of traveling. Um, uh, so I have to get back to work next month, and it's a going to be a historical novel, which I haven't really done. I haven't done a, a research heavy book in a long time. Uh, Sag Harbor, there was research in terms of 80s pop culture, but that was fun. And you just go to YouTube and find a video of Run DMC, and that's, you know, that's research. And then um, for Zone 1, I had to rewatch some post-apocalyptic films and Night Living Dead, but I watched Night Living Dead, you know, twice a year anyway, so it wasn't a big stretch. So going back to a research-heavy book like John Henry Day's, I'm not looking forward to it because I'm sort of older and lazier than I was 13 years ago, but you have to... Yeah, you have to, you know, put your effort in when you write these books. Uh, What period of history? Yeah, too early to share, but, um, you know, it'll be a few years before before I'm done. (laughs) I've been speaking with Colson White, and his new book is The Noble Hustle, Poker, Beef, Jerky, and Death. Thank you for joining me, Colson. And again, yeah, it's always uh, a pleasure to talk to you. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.